Uh, you should find one in front of you in the, the pew back there, and we invite you to turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. Most of you folks uh, know my testimony. I won't drag you through it, but I didn't, wasn't a church-going kid growing up, and at the age of 16, the Lord Jesus Christ invaded my life and changed me for all eternity. The most glorious day of, of my life. And, you know, the day I got saved, I, I, I didn't know everything. I mean, I, I didn't know a lot. I just knew, really, two things. I knew that I was a sinner, and I knew God was holy. And because of that, I called upon his name to save me. And in the last, whatever it's been now, last 27 years or so, God has opened my eyes to, I, I don't know what's shaking here. Am I just kind of like fading in and out, or is it just my sinuses? It could be my sinuses there. <laughs> it's demon, demons on, on Sunday. But, but... It took me quite a few years. Now, I always heard about the importance of, of the Bible. Ever since I got saved, you know, they were telling me, you're supposed to get in this thing every day, you know, and because I wanted to fulfill my responsibility, I did that. But boy, I'll tell you, several years ago, something happened in, in this church through a study that we did together. In fact, we were studying Revelation 2 and 3 at a, a different period of time. And I can tell you that something happened to me with this book during that period of time. And I can, I can say unreservedly, unashamedly this morning that I believe with all my heart that the most precious commodity on this planet is this book that we're holding in our hands. This is the power of God unto salvation. This, without this book, listen, we're all hopeless. We're all helpless. There isn't anything that can be done because the Bible says that we were born again not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible seed. The Word of God. The Bible says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by what? By, by the Word of God. This is an incredible book. And I, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to freak anybody out, you know, if you're a guest and, you know, what, what do they think about that book? Well, what we think about this book is that God has revealed himself to us in this book. And that's why we so cherish this thing. This is, this is a unique book. And of all of the books of, of the Bible, the last book, I mean, when God was going to put the exclamation point on this thing, he just carved off an incredible 22 chapters of his book and just began to do some unbelievable stuff and on your study sheet the, the book of Revelation is unique first of all because it's a unique book of, of history well one of the things you need to understand about the Bible is that it is in fact a book of history and what God has done in this book of history is he took the first 65 books of the Bible. Now, there's 66 in all, but he took the first 65 books of the Bible to take man from when he was pulled from the dust of the earth for a 4,000-year period, approximately 4,000 years. And from the book of Genesis to the book of Jude, basically it covers that 4,000 years, that first 4,000 years of human history. Then God comes to the very last book of the Bible, 
And the reason that this is such a unique book of history is what God does in these simple little 22 chapters is he brings you through, in one book of the Bible, he brings you through the final 3,000 years of human history. It's just an incredible thing of what, what, what God has done. In this one book, he covers 3,000 years. And God is, the, the thing that makes all that history so unique, unique in that 3,000 year period is the fact that God was writing history before it happened. Now, for us, we can look back on about the last 2,000 years of the history that's covered in the book of Revelation. There's a thousand year period yet to come that's covered in Revelation chapter 20 that's called the millennium. But at this point, we stand to where we're looking back on the history of the book of Revelation that when it was written was yet future. So it's a, a very unique book of history. But another thing that makes this book so incredibly unique is the fact that it has a unique author. And we've, we've talked about him. He is John, the Apostle John. And of all of the, the people that you can find in the New Testament, John is the, the greatest example. John is the greatest illustration to us of what God wants a Christian to be. God took this one individual, and through the course of his life, through everything that was taking place, God is just saying, now, listen, y'all, if you want to know how to do this thing right, just watch my boy, John. Because he was a very, very unique person. He was, first of all, a unique follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when Jesus came to this planet. We talk about this just about every Sunday as we're talking about discipleship. But though he preached to multitudes, and we can go to the Gospels and find that multitudes followed him, there were 12 men that he personally invested his life in. But out of that 12, and of course they had a very unique relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, something that the multitudes knew not of. But in the midst of that group of 12, there were three. They were Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John, man, you'll always see as you're working your way through the Gospels that they had a very unique relationship with the Lord. And they went where others couldn't go. Jesus shared things with them that he didn't share with other people. They saw things that the others didn't see. But of the three, the most unique of all was John. As far as a follower is concerned, John is the only one that followed the Lord Jesus Christ all the way to the cross. He was an incredibly unique follower. But something else that made John so unique, the writer of the book of Revelation, was the fact that he has and bears a unique title. In the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of John, he refers to himself all the way through this book as the one whom Jesus loved, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's referred to as the beloved disciple. And what you find out is that Jesus had a, a very, very special love for this guy, John. And the reason that he had a special love for John, of course, is because John had a very special love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a unique title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we also find that he has a unique confidence. Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room. It's just before he's about to be betrayed by Judas, and he explains to the disciples what's getting ready to take place. And he looks and he says to the fellows, he says, listen, one of you is, is going to deny me. You're going to betray me. And what you find recorded in Scripture is one after another, the disciples say, Lord, is it I? Lord, 
is it I? Until it comes to John. John doesn't ask, Lord, is it I? John comes and said, Lord, who is it? He knew that it wasn't going to be him. He may not have had the insight to know that it was going to be Judas, but one thing for sure, he knew it was not going to be him. He had a unique confidence. And he was also given a very unique stewardship. You remember as Jesus was dying on, on the cross, Jesus looked down at John, and he looked at his mother, and what he did is he entrusted to John the watch care of his very own mother. And he says, from now on, John, I want you to take her unto yourself. You make her just like your mother. A very incredible stewardship. And also, he was granted a very unique privilege. In that upper room, as they were eating that last supper, and we, we talk about this, we even sing about this a lot around here. John had one of the most incredible privileges. In fact, I believe the most incredible privilege in all of the Word of God. You see, the Bible says about Abraham in Isaiah 41 and, and verse 8, God referring to Abraham says, Abraham is my friend. I'm telling you, you talk about some incredible privilege for the God of the... Now, hey, Jesus is a friend to us, and we know that. But boy, for Jesus to look down at us and say, I'll tell you what, that guy, that lady is my friend. God looked down at Abraham and says, that's my friend. Enoch, the Bible says in, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that he had this testimony that he, what? He pleased God. Man, you talk about a privilege. How about that one? The God of the universe looking out of heaven and looking at your life and saying, you know, they just, they just please me. They bring pleasure to my heart. And of course, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, that's why we were created in the first place. And Enoch had that incredible privilege. We, we can talk about Moses in Exodus 33, in verse 11. What it says about Moses is that Moses spoke to the Lord face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And we're all anticipating that. Moses has already done that. He, he did that in Exodus chapter 33. Here's David. David was the man after God's own heart. He comes to the end of his life, and what it says of David is that he did what was right all the days of his life, except for in the situation with Uriah the Hittite. But, now listen, we, we all dog David a whole bunch because of that little situation with Bathsheba and, and her husband and, and all of that, and well, we should. But I'll just tell you, if the Lord was going to put the final capstone on my life and said he did that which was right, I'm just telling you, there wouldn't be one exception to that rule. He did that which was right a little bit of the time. But David did that which was right all the days of his life except for in that one matter. That's an incredible thing, an incredible privilege to have the God of the universe look down and say that to you. But nobody had the privilege that John had. Because in that upper room that night, the Bible says that John laid his head on Jesus' breast. And of course, Jesus is God in human flesh. And with his head on Jesus' breast, he would have heard the very heartbeat of God. And when you talk about being an example of a Christian, you talk about being an illustration of a Christian. Y'all, I'm telling you, 
That's where God wants to find us every single day of our life. Up on his breast through the pages of his book, listening to his heartbeat, catching his heartbeat. And then John is a unique author to this book because he was entrusted with a very unique responsibility. And that was to see and record the final 3,000 years of human history. One of the, the things that you need to understand about the book of Revelation that makes this thing so unique and what makes John so unique as an author is that God, according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, God took John, catapulted him forward to the day of the Lord to where he was actually seeing and experiencing all of this history that we're talking about in this, in this book, this 3,000 years, listen, John has already experienced this. John has already seen this. And I won't take the time to drag you through this, but as, as you just cruise through the book of Revelation, in fact, if you'll just almost follow the first verse of every chapter, what you're going to see is John saying over and over and over again, and I saw, and he's going to follow that with, and I heard, I saw and I heard. I saw and I heard. He was experiencing all of what he's writing about, which for the last 2,000 years has been history, and we're still looking for that, that next 1,000 years of human history on this planet. But John was, was seeing something. He had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony. He told us back in chapter 1. And from the Isle of Patmos on the earth, John is catapulted forward in time and he is seeing things in a dimension that other people cannot see. And I want to, I just as we're, we're starting Revelation chapter 14 this morning, look at verse 1. John says, And I looked, and look at verse 2, And I heard. And it's the same pattern of what we've seen over and over and over again. And now I want you to listen to me, folks. Now, 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 please do not get dull of hearing on this. In Ephesians chapter 2, God tells us something incredible that took place the day that we got saved. You know what happened to us when we got saved? We called upon the name of the Lord, admitting that there was nothing that we could do to come into His presence. And so we, we admitted, we confessed that we were a sinner. We received Jesus Christ as the Lord of our life. And the Bible says that what took place at that moment is our sins were removed as far as the east is from the west. And because of that, we were born again by the Spirit of God. He came and took up residence within us. And, and we've been changed. But now listen. Something else happened to us the day we got saved. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says, and listen to it now. What it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 is he raised us up to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It is a real freaky thing, but for all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior this morning, we're sitting here in New Philadelphia, Ohio in flesh and blood, but spiritually this morning, we've already been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. It is the other half of reality that we can't see. 
But because we can't see it does not mean that it is not real. Listen, that's more real than us being here in this room this morning. We're seated there, and yet we're walking down here. And what, what the Lord tells us is now that we've been raised with Christ to sit in the heavenlies, he comes to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and he tells us this. If ye then be, what's the next word? Risen with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God, and set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. In other words, what he's saying to us, here's the reality of where you're seated. You're seated above. You have in view all of the reality of the throne room of God. You're seated there. But while you're walking down here on the earth, don't ever start getting tied into this system down here. Because you know what the Bible says about us in the book of Hebrews chapter 11? We're strangers and pilgrims down here. This is our destination. This is where we live up here. We're here. We're strangers and pilgrims down here. So he says, now listen, because of that, because you've been raised to sit there, seek that. Don't get down on this earth and start grabbing for all the gusto you can grab. Don't get caught up with all of the things on the earth because you're just strangers and pilgrims here. What it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that we are ambassadors for Christ. Check this out. We've been raised to new life in Christ. And we're up here in this reality. We're seated in the heavenlies. And God says to us, okay, now here's the deal. This is real, and you've already begun to experience eternal life because you're saved, but I've got a job for you. I want you to go walk back down on the earth. But when you go down there, remember that you're a stranger and a pilgrim there. And I'm wanting you to go back down there to be my ambassador. You're just going down there and living in this reality re representing me. You'll be my ambassador, but while you're down there being my ambassador, don't start letting that world get on you. You just keep remembering what the things above are and you seek those. We've talked about it so often. What are the things above? I, I've given you a little drawing on there. We're, we're not going to take a long time on that. But listen, the reason that we can't see the things above is because we have, and forgive the corniness of this, but folks, <laughs> we've got, we got a major eye problem. 
according to Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, what it says is that we think we see very, very well. But God says, you're blind. And what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says that in the last days, perilous times will come. The first characteristic of the last days. He lists 20 different characteristics. The very first one is men shall be lovers of their own selves. You know why we cannot live in the reality of who we are in Christ? It's because we've got I stamped on our eyes. And we're going through life looking at life in terms of me and my and mine and everything revolves around I. What's in this for me? We've got a major eye problem as Laodiceans. And what the scripture tells us is that, you know what, y'all are weird, man. Y'all looking at this dude like, yeah, this is just very natural to see him up there in them shape. <laughs> Watch yourself. <laughs> but, but what the scripture says to this group of people living in these last days is we're to anoint our eyes with what? With eye salve. We're to anoint our eyes with the Word of God and begin to see in a realm that others cannot see. If you can't see in the back, it says eternity. And you know what? As we're walking down here on the earth, what God wants to do is He wants to stamp eternity in our eyes so that as strangers and pilgrims on this earth, as those that have been called to be his ambassadors, we walk through this life, and everywhere we look, we're seeing in an eternal realm. We're seeing what others can't see. You see, that's what John, that's what, that's the way, that's what was happening to John as he's on the Isle of Patmos, down on the earth. He, he's seeing things that others can't see. We look at Paul. And you talk about a guy that had it together as a Christian, man. Paul was the dude. You know why? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 says it was where he was looking. Paul said this, While we look, not on the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, The things which are not seen are eternal. And Paul said, that's where I'm looking. That's why I can accomplish what I'm accomplishing on this planet for God. It's because of where I'm looking. I'm not looking at all this stuff. See, our problem is we got I. I problem. What God wants us to see is in that eternal realm. And as we're seated in the heavenlies up here, What's there? First of all, that triangle on your paper. Put the person of God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. The person of God. God is there. That's what's real, y'all. And he's saying, now listen, while you're on the earth, seek me. And then you'll ne notice next, it's, is it the word of God? Is it? I, I messed up. We'll go to the throne of God. 
What, what you see, the throne of God, what, what you see in, in Ezekiel chapter 1, what you see in Isaiah chapter 6, what you see in Revelation chapter 4, is three men who are caught up into heaven. They're caught up above, and every single one of them, as they're writing about this, are talking about the throne, the throne, the throne. Twelve times in chapter 4 of Revelation, John, caught up into heaven, talks about the throne of God. And every time you see that throne, worship is taking place there. The next is the Word of God. The Word of God. Psalm 119 and verse 89 says that His Word is settled forever in heaven. The Word of God is there in this realm where we're seated. And then next is the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says we're seated there with a, another group of people a group of people that Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 15 calls the family of God. The family of God. Now folks, listen, if you take your Bible and you just go through that thing, what you're going to find is that is the reality that God is wanting us to live in. His person. God wants us to love Him. His throne. God wants us to worship Him. His Word. God wants us to know Him. And God's family, He wants us to tell other people about Him. That's why we're His ambassadors down here. And He's saying, now listen, while you're walking down here on the earth, you live in the reality of what is up there. You, you live in that reality. Don't you get yourself caught up here. And you see, that's what we, we see here in, in the book of Revelation. Is John. We, we saw in chapter 13. He was on the earth, and he sees some horrendous stuff. He sees the revelation of the Antichrist, and then toward the end of the book, he sees the revelation of his false prophet. And what's taking place in Revelation chapter 13 is all the world is bowing to the Antichrist and to his image. And it's a horrendous thing in light of who God is and what God has commanded us and what God has revealed in this book. But now we come to chapter 14. And it's like John just begins to see in a whole different realm. Chapter 13 was on the earth. And now his eyes open to behold something and God contrasts everything that he's seen in chapter 13. In chapter 14, John says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. Who is the Lamb? It's Jesus Christ. A Lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with Him, an hundred forty and four thousand, having His Father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And check this out. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne. 
This is an incredible, incredible group of people that John's referring to here. Now, this 144,000 is a group of people that we saw back in Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to be referring back there quite a bit this morning, but there's a difference. In, in chapter 7, he saw the 144,000, and they were on the earth. By the time he comes to chapter 14, something's happened. And this group of people has been translated. They're in a different place at this time. He sees them on the Mount Zion. And this is the one that Hebrews chapter 12 talks about, the real Zion. Not the one that's in Palestine, but the heavenly. He's, he's talking about what's taking place around the throne. And, and listen, from the time that you see this group of people in Revelation chapter 7 on the earth, and from the time that you see him here in Revelation chapter 14, there has been the most incredible revival that has ever taken place on this earth. Now, what you need to understand is in the days that we're living in, where our eyes can't see what we need to see, there's some things that we don't see. We don't see the things above. But, but there's other problems that we've got. There's things that we think that we see as Laodiceans. You see, because we're Laodiceans and our eyes don't see the way that they, they need to see, we look around us today and Christianity as a whole looks around and, and begins to look at all of these spiritual things. And I mean, you see this all over the, the TV and, and Christian broadcasting, the radio and all kinds of things. And Christians everywhere on this planet right now are talking about it. What marvelous days these are for God when what the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 is that these are not marvelous days. What it tells us is that these are perilous days. That man looks at everything that's going around and, and you hear this again, just every time you turn on, on, on the TV or the radio, somebody's talking about the, the days of great faith that we're living in. What the scripture says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 is that this time is characterized by men departing from the faith. And what is so wild is the very people who are the one that are the loudest in talking about this great faith movement are the very ones that are being referred to in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 as those that are departing from the faith. And, and we, people are talking about what a great move of the Spirit of God that there is all around the world today. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 goes on to, to say that, yeah, there is a very mighty move of the Spirit. But what it says, it's the mighty move of seducing spirits that are taking place on, on the planet. The people are looking around and saying, man, this is, this is just wonderful the way that the church is coming together. We're finally seeing Jesus' prayer in John 17 answered. And we're seeing this unity. And what we saw back in chapter 13 is that what is really taking place on this planet is that the people who are professing to be Christians are setting up the one world church that the Antichrist is going to come and rule and reign over. And while we look and we think we see all this spiritual stuff, what the Bible tells us is that we don't see that at all. And if you really had your eyes anointed with ISAB, you wouldn't rejoice about the incredible times that we're living in. You might rejoice because of how dark it is and our opportunity as, as salt and light to be an influence in this dark world. But we're not looking around at Christianity going, hurrah, hurrah, isn't this wonderful? 
But listen, there is going to come a revival on this planet. The most incredible revival that you have ever in your wildest imagination ever imagined. And it's going to be the result of this group of people that we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 14. Now, again, we, we referred to this group of people when we were back in Revelation chapter 7. And why don't you turn back there. I, I went back and I looked in my notes to see when we were actually in Revelation chapter 7. And you know what's wild is it was over a year ago when we were in chapter 7. And uh, I would imagine that we probably need just a little bit of a refresher course. And so as we're in Revelation chapter 14, and we're talking about this 144,000, and we see them around the throne and singing a song that nobody else can learn. And, and we see them in all of this blessedness after this revival on the earth has taken place. I think we need to just go back and make sure we understand this morning just who this 144,000 uh, is that is sealed. And we find that in Revelation chapter 7 where they are are sealed and we're going to follow a very very simple outline just to give this basic overview of this group of people and we're going to then turn a corner and see some incredible lessons that we can learn from this 144,000 sealed Jews but the outline that we're going to basically follow is just the simple little thing that we learned in elementary school who what when where why and how and so this morning that'll be our outline first of all who who is sealed and listen, when it comes to this 144,000, this is where everybody gets themselves messed up because what they do is they try to read themselves or they try to read their group into this number. And the reason that this is so important that we make sure that we've properly identified who this 144,000 actually is, is this passage in Revelation chapter 7, this passage in Revelation chapter 14 are passages that have been used by the devil in the last 150 years or so to give rise to four different American cults. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Herbert W. Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God, the Seventh-day Adventist, and the Latter-day Saints all try to read themselves into this group of 144,000. But now listen. I don't care what anybody says, I don't care what any group says, what Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4 says is that the 144,000, they are not Jehovah's Witnesses, they're not the Worldwide Church of God, they're not the Seventh-day Adventists, they're not the Latter-day Saints, or the reorganized Latter-day Saints, they aren't spiritual Jews, they aren't spiritual Israelites, they aren't Adam or Abraham's seed spiritually. Listen, there is not one... Gentile in the whole bunch. Not even one out of 144,000 is a Gentile. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 specifically, this is Revelation chapter 7, very specifically tells us who this 144,000 is. They are, it says, the 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. They are literal flesh and blood Jews. And verses 5 to 8 let us know that it is 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 12,000 times 12, of course, 
is 144,000. And God has worded this so distinctly, so specifically, so that there's not any way in the world without violating the rules of Bible study that you could take this 144,000 to mean anything other than what it says. They are literal flesh and blood Jews from the tribes of Israel. And then next, we ask the question, when? When are these 144,000 sealed? When does this really take place? Now, the thing you need to understand back here in chapter 7, and this will be a refresher for some of you folks so that we can get what we need to get about these 144,000. But let me just jolt your mind, and for others of you that weren't here over a year ago when we were back in chapter 7, let me remind you that Revelation chapter 7 is a parenthesis. It's letting us know something that took place prior to uh, the, the tribulation on this earth. You'll notice back in chapter 6. In chapter 6, it records the opening of the seven seals. The first seal opens in, a, in verse 2, and it's the revelation of the Antichrist. And then when you begin to see the, that second seal open, what you begin to see in verse 4 is you begin to see the judgment coming to the earth. And what he does in Revelation chapter 6 is he just works you through those seven seals and he brings you for the first time all the way through the tribulation period which culminates with the second coming of Christ by the time that you get to the end of chapter 6. But when we come to chapter 7, look in verse 1. The four angels on the four corners of the earth who are holding the, the four winds of God's judgment, they're told to hold them by the angel ascending out of the east until, look at verse 3, until verse 3 says the 144,000 are sealed. And so we know this, that the sealing takes place. The sealing of this 144,000 takes place sometime before and or during the opening of the first seal back in chapter 6. In the first three and a half years of the tribulation period before the actual judgment of God begins to blow upon the earth. Because we, we, we see here that that's what he says in, in verse 3. He's saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So we find that chapter 7 forms a parenthesis. It actually fits in somewhere with the opening of that first seal before the judgment of God is unleashed on this planet. And then next, the question is how? How are these 144,000 Jews converted? And you see, the reason that this is even an issue is because what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, what it says is that the church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and ground of truth. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Make sure you get it now. It is the pillar and ground of truth. Now, in chapter 4 of Revelation, in verse 1, the church, which is the pillar and ground of truth, is removed off of the face of this planet. And the point is, everyone who knows God and possesses the truth of God is gone. So the question is, who is going to give 
the truth during the tribulation period. And, and what we find here is that the Apostle Paul gives us a, a, a very monumental statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8 when he described his conversion. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8 that he was one born out of due time. What he means when he talks about being born out of due time is he is saying, I am one who had a, a pre-mature birth. And what you begin to see as you look at the conversion of the Apostle Paul is that he was actually converted the same way that the 144,000 will be converted in the tribulation period. Because what you begin to find as you begin to look at this whole thing and what God does for us is he pictures how the 144,000 will be saved in the tribulation through Paul. Paul was a Jew. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And what he's doing is he's walking down the road to Damascus one day when all of a sudden, bam, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him and immediately his eyes are opened to who Jesus Christ actually was and what he does there is he calls upon the name of the Lord and he was instantaneously and miraculously saved and immediately Jesus said of him, he is a chosen vessel to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now listen, that's the same exact thing that's going to take place with the 144,000. They too are Jews, they are of the tribes of the children of Israel, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to reveal himself to them just like he did to the Apostle Paul. Their blinded eyes will open to who, is, who he is, they will call upon his name, and they will instantaneously and miraculously be converted, and at that same time sealed and chosen to be vessels to bear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ before Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. That's how they're going to be sealed. The church is gone, and so Paul, as a picture of the 144,000, shows us exactly how they're going to be converted. And then next, the question is what and where? What is this seal? And where are they sealed? In verse 2 of chapter 7, lets us know that first of all, that it is the seal of the living God. In the end of verse 3, lets us know that it is a, a visible seal that is marked in the foreheads of this 144,000. And as we read just a couple of minutes ago over in chapter 14, in verse 1, we saw that this seal that's written in the forehead of this 144,000 is actually the name of the Lamb's Father that's marked in their foreheads. And that name, of course, the name of the Lamb's Father is Jehovah. And this is why the Jehovah's Witnesses take that name. Because the name is written in the forehead, and of course they, they've totally taken the thing out of context because they're not Jews, they're Gentiles, and, and that's why I was covering all of that a little bit earlier. But the name is the name Jehovah, and, and that's what this 
seal is. And if you weren't here uh, last time, we had a guest with us last week, but if you weren't here last time when we were in chapter 13, one of the things that you want to note about this, this seal of the living God that's talked about back in chapter 7, it's talked about here in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1, this seal of the, the living God, this, his name, the name of Jehovah written in the forehead of this 144,000. Something you need to understand about that name is that this comes right off of the heels of what we see in chapter 13 where the Antichrist, has a counterfeit seal himself. Chapter 13, and, and then on in, in chapter 14, we'll see this next time. But what it lets us know here in, in these two chapters is that the Antichrist marks his followers in their foreheads as well with what the Bible calls, and you can see back in verse 17 of chapter 13, the Bible calls the number of his name. And what... What we find here in chapter 13 is that in order, in the tribulation period, in order to buy or sell anything, you have got to take the mark of the beast or the number of his name and have that implanted in your forehead. And God tells us that if you take that mark, your eternal destiny will be sealed forever. And once the wrath of God is poured out on this planet, look in verse 10 of chapter 14 right here verses 10 and 11 what it says is because of those who take that mark the mark of the the beast the mark of the antichrist once you take that the wrath of god is going to be poured out and you'll be tormented forever and ever and ever and that brings us to one final question and that is why why are these 144,000 sealed? What, what is this whole thing of this 144,000 about? And if we're really going to understand chapter 14, you've you got to begin to see why it is that God chooses out these 144,000. First of all, uh, before we even get into all that, let me just make sure that you understand that this sealing that we're talking about here isn't the, the same sealing that believers in Jesus Christ have in the church age. This is something different than what we receive. You see, the day that you and I receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, what it says is that we were sealed. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or the, the down payment, it's the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. You see, the, the day that we received the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he purchased us. We became His purchased possession. And in that whole transaction, as He purchased us, what took place is He redeemed our souls, and spiritually we were placed in Christ. And once we were placed in Christ, we were sealed in Him, just like a, a pickle in a, in a jar when you're doing your canning. We were sealed. And God says that that seal, which is the Holy Spirit, is the proof, it is the deposit guaranteeing that one day He is going to redeem these bodies. So our sealing, the sealing that we receive when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior in the church age, is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. 
But like we just saw back in chapter 7, the sealing of the 144,000 is something different. It's not the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It's the sealing of the living God. And we saw just a minute ago, it is a visible seal, at least visible to God, where God marks the 144,000 with his own name in their foreheads. But again, the question is, why? Why is God doing this? Well, I mean, we can just get real simple. Why do you put your name on stuff? You do that because you're, you're saying, this is mine. You put your name on it, it's a mark of ownership, and God's wanting to let every single person on this planet in the tribulation period know that this 144,000 are his. And so, first of all, the 144,000 are sealed to mark God's personal possession. They are the personal property or the, the personal possession of the king. And that's why he seals them. He puts his name on them. And not only that, the 144,000 are sealed to guarantee God's personal protection. They are sealed to guarantee God's personal protection. Now listen, when, when something is marked as the personal property of the king and carries with it, listen, the seal of the king, you can rest assured that the living God who knows all and sees all and has all power is not going to let anybody jive with his stuff. These, this group of people are specifically his, and he is guaranteeing with that mark his protection of them. Now, you know, as human beings, people, you know, we get a little ticked off when people jive with our stuff, you know? Well, we can't always keep an eye on our stuff, and, and even if we can keep an eye on it, sometimes there's people that are bigger and badder than we are, and if they want to mess with our stuff, we're like, I don't know what to do about that. But you see, when it comes to God, when it comes to the seal of the living God, there's nobody bigger, there's nobody badder, and there's no, nothing that he is ever going to escape his sight. And he puts his name... And he guarantees his protection of those people. Now, I, I do want to say this to you. Now, listen. What is, what is just so neat about this thing is there's horrendous stuff that's going on during the tribulation period. In fact, go to, go to chapter 9 for a minute. All of this judgment is coming down. Remember we saw back in chapter 7 just a minute ago? What the angel says is, hold up on this judgment thing. Hold up. Don't let these winds start blowing yet because, first of all, we've got to seal the 144,000 because ain't nothing going to happen to these people. So we've got to seal them first. Okay? And again, that's that guarantee that's it's guaranteeing their, their, their protection. And we see in chapter 9, the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven upon the earth, unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. This is the guarantee of their protection. 
God marks his name on it and says, these are mine, and I ain't letting anybody or anything mess with these people. And it's an incredible promise that God has given to this group of people. And yet, I, I, I want to just say this, and I think we, we need to talk about this as a church. You need to understand that because you are God's, and because you were born into God's family, you need to understand that you have the same guarantee of God's protection. And there is nothing that is ever, ever, ever going to happen in your life that God has not either appointed or allowed. And you are going to be protected until God wants to take you home with him. And when he wants to take you home, is, is it all right if the God of the universe wants to bring you back to him? And, and so you see, the reason I think this is so important is because we're sitting here with over a hundred of the men of this church that are planning to go to Russia in about two months, in fact, two months from today, isn't it? Yeah, wow, check that out. And yet, the world, and that part of the world, is in total upheaval. And, and you know what? Have you felt it in, in, the, in the church? Everyone's talking about it. Nobody wants to say it too loud. Everybody's wondering, are we really supposed to do it? I mean, in light of all that's going on in Kosovo, are we, are we supposed to do all this? And, and we're just a little bit freaked out. Listen, if this is what God has done and God has opened that door for us to go, the safest place for us to be is on Russian soil. The, the, the worst place you could possibly be is freaking out somewhere where God doesn't want you. But listen, if you're carrying out what God wants you to carry out, you're going to have the protection of God, and you're going to be you're going to be just fine until He's ready to take you to to be with Him. And, and when He's ready, listen, don't try to stay past when He's ready. You know, it, it can just be a, a, a real bummer. Because at that point, man, you, then you are not living with the protection of, of God. So it's an incredible thing, man. He, God marks these as his own. And he guarantees through that seal that they are going to be protected. And, 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 and I, the thing that I just lo love about this is, is back in chapter 13. You remember as we're, we're coming through chapter 13, I mean, you listen, man. Satan is just absolutely having a heyday. I mean, he, he is just, through the Antichrist, I mean, he's just having a heyday. This is a period of time in chapter 13. This is where, where sin is just absolutely unleashed on this planet. And here is Satan through the Antichrist and the false prophet. And they're absolutely chopping off the heads of millions and millions of people who won't take the mark of the beast. And listen, while all of that's going on and, and Satan is just running rampant on people, persecuting and killing them, the 144,000 are going to be a constant reminder of the fact that one of these days Satan is going to be cast into the bottomless pit because every time he comes to 144,000, they're marked with the seal of God on their foreheads and there ain't jack that he can do about it. And you know what? He looks at them and it's a reminder to him that Romans chapter 16 and verse 20 says that soon, soon 
he is going to be put under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that that 144,000 every time in the tribulation period, I mean, he's lopping people's head off left and right. But every time he comes to that 144,000, it's like, uh-oh, uh-oh. And you see, it's like God lets him do his thing, but he's still on a leash. And he comes to that 144,000 and God says, no, you ain't, you ain't touching them. These are mine and I've sealed them and I've protected them. And then there's, there's one last reason. This seal is, is something more than God simply marking his personal possession. It's something more than God guaranteeing his, his personal protection. Listen, the 144,000 are sealed to fulfill God's personal purpose. They are sealed to fulfill God's personal purpose. And you know what that is? Folks, it's the same purpose that He's always had. The purpose of God, ever since man chose the way of sin in the garden, the, God's purpose was to redeem the whole world. And you can work yourself all the way through that, that Old Testament. And what you can find all the way through is that God's desire through the nation of Israel is that He wanted to take that nation and He wanted to set them apart from the world and unto Himself. And through that group of people, through the nation of Israel, He wanted to draw all the nations of the world to Himself. And over and over again, what you find through the Old Testament is, is that the nation of Israel flopped big time over and over and over again. And then for the last 2,000 years, God still has been seeking to redeem the world to Himself. And now the plan is no longer to redeem the world through the nation of Israel. Now His plan is to redeem the world through something that is called the church. And except for a brief little stint in the first century, and another brief little stint in the 17th and 18th and a little bit of the 19th century, the church has flopped as well. And in the 20th century, the 20th century that we live in, has probably been the worst. Because you see, now... Now we've entered into a, a new kind of dark ages that the church thinks is light. This is what we were talking about at the beginning. We're living in a new kind of dark ages. But everybody that's running around naming the name of Christ thinks that this is a time of great blessing and a time of great light. And this is wonderful. And we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And Jesus says, and you don't realize that you're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. Whereas in times gone by when the church was carrying out the commission, it had a preoccupation with taking that book to the ends of the earth. And now we're sitting in the 20th century and man has a, an incredible preoccupation, but it isn't to get that book out. It's an incredible preoccupation with himself. 
So the plan was through the nation of Israel to redeem the world. They flopped. The plan was through the church to redeem the world. And we flopped. But check it out. During the tribulation period, one of the reasons that God seals this 144,000 is to be his special messengers to fulfill his mission. And believe it or not, after 6,000 years of human history and man failing with the commission that was granted to him, God finally gets a group of people who's going to do it. The 144,000 are going to fulfill God's personal purpose. The Jews will finally fulfill God's purpose in choosing them. He, he chose them way, way back in the Old Testament. He chose them to be his own and listen, during the tribulation period, they're finally going to fulfill God's purpose in choosing them. And listen, they will do in seven years what the nation of Israel fa failed to do in thousands of years of its history. In seven years, that 144,000 is going to evangelize the whole world. And they'll go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Let me ask you to turn back to Matthew 24 for just a second. And I am wrapping this up right now. But I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives a prophecy. And the 144,000 are the fulfillment of this prophecy that Jesus made. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. He's, he's not saying that, that the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the rapture is going to take place. You see, that's what a lot of people, they get, get themselves all messed up in Matthew chapter 24. He's not saying that all the, the world's going to hear the gospel, and then Jesus is going to come. No, all the world's going to hear the gospel, and then the end, and the way that they're going to hear the gospel is to the witness of this 144,000 that we're talking about. And turn back to, to Revelation chapter 7 for a minute, and let me show you the results of their efforts. Revelation chapter 7. And look at verse 9. John says, After this I beheld... And lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Listen, not only do the 144,000 preach to every people group on the earth, but verse 9 says that there's going to be at least some from every people group in the world who will respond. And they will be around the throne. And, and listen, in chapter 13, here's all these people that are taking the mark of the beast, and it says the whole world 
is, that takes the mark is worshiping at his feet. But you need to understand something. There's another part of that whole world that's being evangelized by the 144,000 who are coming to Christ. And these are the ones that are martyred in chapter 6. And, and John was saying that he saw their, their souls, those that had been beheaded for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so listen, during the tribulation period, don't ever get the idea that there won't be many, many, many people saved. There'll be more people saved in the, tribula- in the tribulation period than this whole century. I mean, it's going to be an incredible thing. Now, you know, sometimes we, uh, we take a little bit more on ourselves than, than we need to take on. We think that, you know, you know, without me, you know, God's in a big heap of trouble, you know. And we, we think about the, the three billion people on this planet who have never one time, ever had a chance to hear the gospel. Listen. If the rapture were to take place today, all three billion of those people would get a chance to hear the gospel. They would hear it from the mouth of the 144,000 who were sealed to be and fulfill the purpose of God, to get the word of God to them. Now, we don't have any guarantee that those three billion people aren't going to die right now before the rapture. This doesn't negate our responsibility to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But you do need need to understand something. Those people that have never heard the gospel will hear the gospel during the tribulation period. And what you see here in verse 9 is multitudes and multitudes and multitudes, a number that John said that he couldn't even number, that are going to come to Christ during the tribulation period. I believe that that number that he can't number is somewhere around 3 billion. Those people are going to have the gospel presented to them by 144,000 apostle Pauls that will be running all over the earth and being able to speak in languages that they have not studied. And it's going to be an incredible period of time on this earth. And so if we're going to move into chapter 14 and, and find out why it is that this group of people is singing a song that nobody can sing and why it is that God's so high on this group of people, you've got to understand the who, what, when, where, why, and how that we've talked about this morning And what we're going to see next Sunday is coming out of this group some incredible lessons that I believe God wants to teach us as Laodiceans that we can learn from this group of 144,000 witnesses because we have the same commission and God has sealed us for the same purpose. God's got His name on us that He's written on us by the Holy Spirit of God. We are sealed. It guarantees our protection. And because we have been sealed, we have the responsibility to fulfill His purpose. And we're going to see how that all unfolds next week as we move on in chapter 14. Now, Lord, I thank You that You have left us this book that we can use to set our lives to. Thank You for... Men like John, Paul, we've talked about today, men that saw life in a, in a totally different dimension than, than we tend to see it. Even in light of the things you've commanded us, it's just so easy for us to remain earthbound and to, to see things from a human perspective, to see life through the vantage point of our, ourselves. Lord, we thank you.
for what you allowed John to be able to see and to, to hear. And I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to be able to, to see that other half of reality that we talked about this morning. It can't be seen with, with human eyes, but through the eyes of faith. And may we, as strangers and pilgrims on the earth and as ambassadors as we walk on this earth, may we look and behold those things and may it, may it so grip our life that it changes our walk on the earth so that we fulfill the purpose that we've got in being left on this earth to, to carry your message to the ends of the earth. And Lord, I, I pray for those that are in this room this morning that don't know you as their Savior. We've <clears throat> not addressed their specific need this morning as far as the presentation of the gospel. And yet we believe that this is your book and that there's power in that book as it's proclaimed. And Lord, I pray that if they have never come into a relationship with you where they've called upon your name. I pray that this would be the day that they would call upon your name and understand what the sealing of the Spirit of God is in their life, being brought to life by that very Spirit. May this be the day of salvation for people in this room this morning. And Lord, I, I pray... And you would help us to learn what we need to learn from these 144,000. After century after century after century of failure, I pray in these last days before you come for us and before the 144,000 are sealed to carry out their mission, I pray that in this, this church we would see that our mission is the same as theirs. And until you come for us, may we be found faithful, carrying your gospel to the ends of the earth. And we ask these things for your glory's sake. Amen.